Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Amazon tiene todo lo que necesitas para tu dormitorio, desde productos esenciales hasta ropa y decoración e incluso ropa de cama para... Sí, 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 estás activas. Y si estás regulares también, ahorra en todo para la universidad en Amazon. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumbo Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumbo Casino was America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. This episode is powered by Poddex. Poddex are unique interview questions and episode starting prompts in the palm of your hand. So whether you're a new podcaster or existing broadcaster looking to grow your audience and have more meaningful conversations, you're going to want to check out Poddex. Now, if you want to get 10% off your order right now, you can go to poddex.com and type in coupon code, what's the code? Larry21. Yes, that's the code. Check out poddex.com. Take your podcast to the next level. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. We dive into stories of true crime, from unsolved cold cases to historic kidnapping to gangsters and beyond. We are your source for true crime. We thank you for listening. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. I'm your host, Larry Elise. And on today's episode, we're going to dive into Jonathan Pollard, an Israeli spy that worked in the CIA. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Pondex, for sponsoring this episode. Pondex are the hottest new tool for podcasters looking to have more meaningful conversations or to gamify their podcast. Simply shuffle up, ask a question, and let the content roll. Get yours today at poddex.com and use the code Larry21 for 10% off your order. That's Larry21 for 10% off your order. And now on to our main topic. Jonathan J. Pollard is a former intelligence analyst for the U.S. government. In 1987, as part of a plea agreement, Pollard pleaded guilty to spying for and providing top-secret classified information to Israel. He was sentenced to life in prison for violations of the Espionage Act, making him the only American to receive a life sentence for passing classified information to an ally of the United States. In defense of his actions, Pollard said that he committed espionage only because the American intelligence establishment collectively endangered Israel's security by withholding crucial information. Israeli officials, U.S. Israeli activist groups, and some U.S. politicians who saw his punishment as unfair lobbied continually for reduction or commutation of his sentence. The Israeli government acknowledged a portion of its role in Pollard's espionage in 1987 and issued a formal apology to the U.S. 
but did not admit to paying him until 1998. Over the course of his imprisonment, Israel made repeated unsuccessful attempts through both official and unofficial channels to secure his release. He was granted Israeli citizenship in 1995. While Benjamin Netanyahu argued that Pollard worked exclusively for Israel, Pollard admitted shopping his services successfully in some cases to other countries. Opposing any form of clemency were many active and retired U.S. officials, including Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, former CIA Director George Tenet, several former Secretaries of Defense, a bipartisan group of U.S. congressional leaders, and members of the U.S. intelligence community. They maintained that the damage to U.S. national security due to Pollard's espionage was far more severe, wide-ranging, and enduring than publicly acknowledged. Although Pollard argued that he only supplied Israel with information critical to its security, opponents stated that he had no way of knowing what the Israelis had received through legitimate exchanges, and that much of the data he compromised had nothing to do with Israeli security. Pollard revealed aspects of the U.S. intelligence gathering process, its, quote, sources and methods. He sold numerous closely guarded state secrets, including the NSA's 10-volume manual on how the U.S. gathers its signal intelligence, and disclosed the names of thousands of people who had cooperated with the U.S. intelligence agencies. Pollard was released on November 20, 2015, in accordance with federal guidelines in place at the time of his sentencing. On November 20, 2020, his parole expired and all restrictions were removed. On December 30, 2020, Pollard and his second wife moved to Israel and settled in Jerusalem. But who was Jonathan J. Pollard? So let's talk about it. Jonathan Pollard was born in Galveston, Texas in 1954 to a Jewish family, the youngest of three siblings born to Morris and Mildred Molly Pollard. In 1961, his family moved to South Bend, Indiana, where his father Morris, an award-winning microbiologist, taught at the University of Notre Dame. At an early age, Pollard became aware of the horrific toll the Holocaust had taken on his immediate family on his mother's side of the family, the Khan from Vilna in Lithuania, and shortly before his bar mitzvah, he asked his parents to visit the Nazi death camps. Pollard's family made a special effort to instill a sense of Jewish identity in their children which included devotion to the cause of Israel. Pollard grew up with what he called a racial obligation to Israel and made his first trip to Israel in 1970 as part of a science program visiting the Weizmann Institute of Science. And I'm going to butcher this name, Rehovot. While there, he was hospitalized after a fight with another student. One Weizmann scientist remembered Pollard as leaving behind, quote, a reputation of being a troublemaker. After completing high school, Pollard attended Stanford University, where he completed a degree in political science in 1976. While there, he is remembered by several of his acquaintances as having boasted that he was a dual citizen of the U.S. and Israel, claiming to have worked for Mossad, and to have attained the rank of colonel in the Israeli Defense Forces, even sending himself a telegram addressed to Colonel Pollard, and to have killed an Arab while on guard duty at a kibbutz. He also claimed that his father, Morris, was a CIA operative and to have fled Czechoslovakia as a child during the Prague Spring in 1968 when his father's CIA role was discovered. None of these claims were true. Later, Pollard enrolled in several graduate schools but never completed a postgraduate degree. Pollard's future wife, Anne Henderson, moved to Washington, D.C. in the fall of 1978 to live with her recently divorced father, 
Bernard Henderson. In the summer of 1981, she moved into a house on Capitol Hill with two other women, and through a friend of one of her roommates, she first met Pollard. He later said he had fallen in love during their first meeting. They were, quote, an inseparable couple by November 1981. And in June 1982, when Capitol Hill lease expired, she moved into Pollard's apartment in Arlington, Virginia. In December 1982, the couple moved into downtown Washington, D.C. to a two-bedroom apartment at 1733 20th Street Northwest, near DuPont Circle. They married on August 9, 1985, more than a year after Pollard began spying for Israel in a civil ceremony in Venice, Italy. And now, on to his early career. Pollard began applying for intelligence service jobs in 1979 after leaving graduate school first at the CIA, then at the U.S. Navy. Pollard was turned down for the CIA job after taking a polygraph test in which he admitted to prolific illegal drug use between 1974 and 1978. He fared better with the Navy, and on September 19, 1979, he was hired by the Navy Field Operational Intelligence Office, an office of the Naval Intelligence Command. As an intelligence specialist, he was to work on Soviet issues at the Navy Ocean Surveillance Information Center, a department of the Navy Field Operational Intelligence Office. A background check was required to receive the necessary security clearances, but no polygraph. In addition to a top-secret clearance, a more stringent, sensitive compartment information clearance was required. The Navy asked for but was denied information from the CIA regarding Pollard, including the results of their pre-employment polygraph test, revealing Pollard's excessive drug use. Pollard was given temporary non-SCI security clearances pending completion of his background check, which was normal for new hires at the time. He was assigned to temporary duty at another NIC department the Naval Intelligence Support Center, Surface Ships Division, where he could work on tasks that did not require SCI clearance. Current Operations Center and the NISC were co-located in Suitland, Maryland. Two months after Pollard was hired, he approached the technical director, Richard Haver, offered to start a back-channel operation with the South African Intelligence Service. He also lied about his father being involved with CIA operations in South Africa, Haver became wary of Pollard and requested that he be terminated. However, Haver's boss believed that Pollard's supposed connection with South African intelligence could be useful, and he reassigned him to a Navy human intelligence operation, Task Force 168. This office was within Naval Intelligence Command, the headquarters for Navy intelligence operations, located in a separate building but still within the Suitland Federal Center complex. It was later discovered that Pollard had lied repeatedly during the vetting process for this position. He denied illegal drug use, claimed his father had been a CIA operative, misrepresented his language abilities and his educational achievements, and claimed to have applied for a commission as an officer in the Naval Reserve. A month later, Pollard received his SCI clearances and was transferred to TF-168. While transferring to his new job at TF-168, Pollard again initiated a meeting with someone far up the chain of command, this time with Admiral Sumner Shapiro, Commander, Naval Intelligence Command, but an idea he had for TF-168 and South Africa. The TF-168 group personally passed on his ideas. After the meeting, Shapiro immediately ordered that Pollard's security clearances be revoked and that he be reassigned to a non-sensitive position. 
According to the Washington Post, Shapiro, Shapiro dismissed Pollard as a kook, saying later, quote, I wish the hell and I'd fire him. Because of the job transfer, Shapiro's order to remove Pollard's security clearances slipped through the cracks. However, Shapiro's office followed up with a request to TF-168 that Pollard be investigated by the CIA. The CIA found Pollard to be a risk and recommended that he not be used in any intelligence collection operation. As a, a subsequent polygraph test was inconclusive, although it did prompt Pollard to admit to making false statements to his superiors, prior drug use, and having unauthorized contacts with representatives of foreign governments. The special agent administering the test felt that Pollard, who at times began shouting and shaking and making gagging sounds, as if he were going to vomit, was feigning illness to invalidate the test. He recommended against Pollard being granted access to highly classified information. Pollard was also required to be evaluated by a psychiatrist. Pollard's clearance was reduced to secret. He subsequently filed a grievance and threatened lawsuits to recover his SCI clearance. While awaiting his grievance to be addressed, he worked on less sensitive material and began receiving excellent performance reviews. 1982, after the psychiatrist concluded Pollard had no mental illness, Pollard's clearance was upgraded to SCI. In October 1984, after some reorganization of the Navy's intelligence departments, Pollard applied for and was accepted into a position as an analyst for the Naval Intelligence Command. Shortly after Pollard began working at NICTF-168, he met, apologies for saying his name wrong, Aviam Sela, a combat veteran of the Israeli Air Force. At the time, he was on leave from his position as a colonel to gain a master's degree in computer science as a graduate student at NYU. Pollard told him that he worked for U.S. Naval Intelligence, told him about specific incidents where U.S. intelligence was withholding information from Israel, and offered to work as a spy. Though Sella had wondered whether Pollard was part of an FBI sting operation to recruit an Israeli, he ended up believing him. Sella phoned his Air Force Intelligence Command in Tel Aviv for further instructions, and the call was switched to the Air Force Chief of Staff. Sella was ordered to develop a contact with Pollard, but to be careful. He was warned that either the Americans were offering a dangle in order to root out foreign intelligence operations, or if this was a genuine spy, Sella would have to pay careful attention to his work. Within a few days, June 1984, Pollard started passing classified information to Sella. He was paid $10,000 cash and given a very expensive diamond and sapphire ring, which Pollard later offered to his girlfriend Anne when proposing to her. Pollard was paid well by the Israelis. He received a salary that eventually reached $2,500. That is a month and tens of thousands of dollars in cash disbursements for hotels, meals, and jewelry. In his pre-sentencing statement to Judge Robinson, Pollard said the money was a benefit that was forced on him. Quote, I did not, or excuse me, quote, I did accept money for my services, he acknowledged, but only, quote, as a reflection of how well I was doing my job. Instead, that he and later told his controller, Rafi Eitzin, a longtime spy who at the time headed Lokim, a scientific intelligence unit in Israel, that, quote, I not only intended to repay all the money I'd received, but also was going to establish a chair at the Israeli General Staff's Intelligence Training Center outside Tel Aviv. Naval Criminal Investigative Service investigator Ronald Olive 
has alleged that Pollard passed classified information to South Africa and attempted through a third party to sell classified information to Pakistan on multiple occasions. Pollard also stole classified documents related to China on behalf of his wife who used the information to advance her personal business interests. She kept these secret materials around the house where investigating authorities discovered them when Pollard's espionage activity came to light. During Pollard's trial, the U.S. government's memorandum in aid of sentencing challenged the defendant's claim that he was motivated by altruism rather than greed. The government said that Pollard had disclosed classified information in attempt or anticipation, mind you, of financial gain in other instances. During the course of the Pollard trial, Australian authorities reported the disclosure of classified American documents by Pollard to a Royal Australian Navy officer who had been engaged in a personal exchange naval liaison program between the U.S. and Australia. The Australian officer, alarmed by Pollard's repeated disclosure to him of data caveated no foreign access allowed, reported the indiscretions to his chain of command. If or it recalled the officer from his position in the U.S., fearing that the disclosures might be part of a CIA ruse. Confronted with this accusation after entering his plea, Pollard admitted only to passing a single classified document to the Australian. Later, he changed his story and claimed that his superiors ordered him to share information with the Australians. As of 2014, the full extent of the information Pollard passed to Israel has still not been officially revealed. Press reports cited a secret 46-page memorandum which Pollard and his attorneys were allowed to view. They were provided to the judge by Secretary of Defense Caspar Weinberger, who described Pollard's spying as including, among other things, obtaining and copying the latest version of radio signal notations, 10-volume manual comprehensively detailing America's global electronic surveillance network. After Pollard's release, the former deputy head of the Mossad, Ram Ben Barak, publicly regretted Pollard, saying that the recruitment and operation were unknown by the intelligence leadership and unauthorized, with the resultant damage to the U.S.-Israeli relationship far outweighing the value of the intelligence Pollard provided. Quote, Our entire relationship with the U.S. deteriorated because of this. People lost jobs over it. It made for years and years of suspicion, with Americans suspecting he wasn't the only one feeling that they hadn't gotten the necessary explanations. They didn't believe it wasn't authorized. It caused huge, huge damage. They saw it as a betrayal of them. And before we dive into his capture, we'd like to thank our other sponsor, Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Every Every month, Members get one credit to pick any title, plus two of Audible Originals from a monthly selection, as well as access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as guided meditation programs. Right now, albeit taking a break from true crime reading, I'm currently listening to The Actor's Life by Jenna Fisher. It's a unique take on what it takes to become an actor in L.A., um, narrated and written by Jenna Fisher who's best known for her role on The Office. Sign up today and receive one free audiobook and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash Larry21. And now let's get back into Jonathan Pollard and his eventual capture. Pollard's espionage nearly came to light in 1984 when a department head noted a report 
had Soviet military equipment and questioned why it was germane to the office. Pollard, to whom the report was traced, was asked about it, and he replied that he had been working on terrorist networks, which was accepted as valid. 1985, a co-worker anonymously reported Pollard's removal of classified material from the NIC. The co-worker noted that Pollard did not seem to be taking the material to any known appropriate destination, such as other intelligence agencies in the area. Although Pollard was authorized to transport documents, and a co-worker said the documents were properly wrapped, it appeared out of place that Pollard would be transporting documents on a Friday afternoon when there was little going on people seemed to be focused on an upcoming long weekend. Ultimately, that report was not acted upon as it felt it occurred within business hours, business hours and Pollard had business being in other offices. In another instant, Pollard's direct superior, having to complete extra work at the office on a Saturday, had walked by Pollard's desk and noticed unsecured classified material. Taking the initiative to secure it, the superior glanced over, glanced over it and saw it was unrelated to anti-terrorism matters in the Caribbean, on which the section was focused. Looking at more unrelated documents, the supervisor believed foreign intelligence might be involved, but was unable to determine which nation might be interested. Pollard was stopped and questioned by FBI agents about a week later while removing classified material from his work premises. He explained that he was taking it to another analyst at a different agency for a consultation. His story was checked and found to be false. Pollard requested a phone call to his wife to tell her where he was. As the interview was voluntary, the investigators had no choice but to grant the request. During the, during the call to Anne, Pollard used the code word cactus, signaling that he was in trouble that he should remove or that she should remove all classified material from their home. She attempted to do this enlisting the help of a neighbor. Pollard later agreed to a search of his home, which found a few documents which Anne had missed. At this point, the FBI decided to cede the case to Pollard's supervisors, since they had uncovered only mishandling of documents, with no proof that Pollard was passing classified information. The case broke wide open a few days later when Pollard was asked by his supervisors his superiors, excuse me, to take a polygraph test. Instead, he admitted to illegally passing on documents without mentioning Israel. The FBI returned and became involved. A short time later, Pollard's, Pollard's neighbor, a naval officer, became concerned about the safeguarding the 70-pound suitcase full of highly classified material that Anne had given him, and began calling around the military intelligence community asking for advice. He cooperated fully with the investigation was never charged with any crime. After his partial confession, Pollard was put under surveillance, but not taken into custody. On November 21st, 1985, he and his wife tried to gain asylum at the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., when at the time, the Israeli ambassador to the U.S. was the future Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, but they were ordered to leave by Israeli guards. FBI agents arrested Pollard as soon as he left embassy property. His handler, Rafi Aitin, stated in a 2014 interview that Pollard had been warned that he was uncovered and that he had given him a prearranged signal to leave the U.S. But instead, Pollard wandered around for three days with them, following him. He had many, many opportunities to do what I told him, and he didn't do it. His handler claimed that he had given the order to evict Pollard from the embassy. After Pollard's arrest, Anne evaded an FBI agent who was following her, met Sella at a restaurant, and told him of her husband's arrest. As a result, three Israeli diplomatic personnel involved in the operation were also informed. 
uh, science attaches Yosef Yeager and Alan Ravid and Embassy Secretary Harit Yerb. Apologies for saying these names wrong. Lacombe had not foreseen this turn of events, nor crafted escape plans, and they were told to flee immediately. The apartment where the documents stolen by Pollard were kept and copied was cleared out, and all four immediately fled Washington. Sell and his wife took a train to New York and caught a flight to London. Yager fled to Canada, Herb to Mexico, and Ravid to Miami, from where they caught connecting flights to Israel. All were out of the U.S. in 24 hours, and was arrested the next day. Pollard's plea discussions with the government sought both to avoid a life sentence for him, to allow Anne Pollard to plead to lesser charges, which the government was otherwise unwilling to let her do. The government, however, did eventually offer Anne a plea agreement provided that Jonathan Pollard assist the government in its damage assessment. As part of this process, he agreed to polygraph examinations and interviews with FBI agents and Department of Justice attorneys over a period of several months. In late May 1986, the government offered him a plea agreement, which he accepted. By terms of that agreement, Pollard was required to plead guilty to one count of conspiracy to deliver, to deliver national defense information to a foreign government, which carried a maximum prison term of life, and to cooperate fully with the government's ongoing investigation. He promised not to disseminate any information concerning his crimes or his case, or to speak publicly about any classified information without first receiving permission from the Director of Naval Intelligence. He further agreed that failure by Anne Pollard to adhere to the terms of her agreement entitled the government to avoid his agreement and vice versa. In return for Pollard's plea, the government promised not to charge him with additional crimes. Three weeks before Pollard's sentencing, Wolf Blitzer at the time drew some post correspondence conducted a jail cell interview with Pollard. The interview formed the basis of Blitzer's newspaper article, which also ran in the Washington Post, under the headline, Pollard, not a bumbler, but Israel's master spy. Pollard told Blitzer about some of the information he provided to Israelis, reconnaissance satellite photography of the PLO headquarters in Tanzania, which was used for Operation Wooden Leg, specific capabilities of Libya's air defenses, and the pick of U.S. intelligence about Arab and Islamic conventional and unconventional military activity from Morocco to Pakistan and every country in between. This included both friendly and unfriendly Arab countries. Prior to sentencing, Pollard and his wife gave further defiant media interviews in which they defended their spying and attempted to rally Jewish Americans to their cause. In a 60 Minutes interview from prison, Anne said, quote, I feel my husband... And I did what we were expected to do, and what our moral obligation was as Jews, what our moral obligation was as human beings, and I have no regrets about that. On June 4th, 1986, Pollard pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to deliver national defense information to a foreign government. Pollard stated that while his motives, quote, may have been well-meaning, they cannot, under any stretch of the imagination, excuse or justify the violation of the law particularly one that involves a trusted government. I broke trust, ruined, and brought disgrace to my family. He admitted and apologized for taking money from the Israeli government in exchange for classified information. Anne Pollard, in her own statement, stated that she did what at the time believed to be correct, in helping her husband 
and attempting to conceal stolen documents, adding, quote, and I can't say that I would never help him again. However, I would look for different routes or different ways. The Pollard sentencing took place on March 4, 1987, while the prosecutor, in compliance with the plea agreement, recommended that Pollard receive only a substantial number of years in prison. Judge Aubrey Robinson Jr. was not obligated to follow the recommendation. Noting that Pollard had violated multiple conditions of the plea agreement, he imposed a life sentence on the basis of a classified damage assessment memorandum submitted by Secretary of Defense Casper Weinberger. Pollard was then moved from FCC Petersburg in Virginia, where he had been held since 1986, to a federal prison hospital in Springfield, Missouri to undergo a battery of mental health tests. In June 1988, he was transferred to USP Marion, and in 1993, to FCI Butner Medium at the Butner Federal Correction Complex in North Carolina. In May 1991, Pollard asked Avi Weiss to be his personal rabbi. Israeli Chief Rabbi Mordecai Eliyahu was also a supporter of Pollard and campaigned for his release from prison. Ann Pollard was sentenced to five years, but was paroled after three and a half years due to health problems. Pollard filed for Doris after Ann's release. While he reportedly said that he expected to be jailed for the remainder of his life and did not want Ann to be bound to him. Ann later told a reporter that the divorce papers were served with no warning or explanation of any kind. After finalization of his divorce from Ann, Pollard married Esther Elaine Seats, a Canadian teacher and activist based in Toronto, who had organized a campaign for his release. In 1996, she initiated a public hunger strike, but ended it 19 days later after meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who pledged to step up his efforts to secure Pollard's release. In 1988, Israel proposed a three-way exchange, wherein Pollard and his wife would be released and deported to Israel. Israel would release Soviet spy Marcus Kleinberg. The Soviet Union would exercise its influence with Syria and Iran to release American hostages held there by Syrian and Iranian-sponsored terrorist groups. In September, or excuse me, in November 2014, Rafi Eaton, who headed Alikum from 1981 until its dissolution in 1986, admitted that he knew in advance of Pollard's impending arrest in 1985 and alerted then Prime Minister Shimon Peres and Defense Minister Yitzhak Rabin. He said that it was his decision to refuse Pollard's request for asylum in the Israeli embassy. When asked if Israeli officials were aware of Pollard's espionage activities, he replied, of course. Multiple and multiple people were trying to keep uh, Jonathan Pollard in prison, including, like we said, former secretaries of defense, vice presidents, members of Congress. But he eventually was paroled. Laws in effect at the time of Pollard's sentencing mandated that federal inmates serving life sentences to be paroled after 30 years of incarceration no significant prison regulations have been violated. 
and if there was a reasonable probability that the inmate would not reoffend. On July 28, 2015, the U.S. Parole Commission announced that Pollard would be released on November 20, 2015. The U.S. Justice Department informed Pollard's legal team that it would not contest the Parole Commission's unanimous July 7th decision. The terms of release set by the Parole Commission stipulated that Pollard must remain on parole for a minimum of five years. The U.S. government could have legally extended his period of parole until 2030. His parole restrictions required him to remain in New York City unless granted special permission to travel outside. His parole officer was also authorized to impose a curfew and set exclusion zones within the city. He was ordered to wear electronic monitoring devices to track his movement. In addition, press interviews and internet access without prior permission were prohibited. Pollard's attorneys appealed the conditions, which removed only one restriction, that of requiring prior permission to use the internet. However, it was ruled that his internet use would be subjected, subjected to monitoring. After his release on November 20th, Pollard relocated to an apartment secured for him by his attorneys in New York City. A 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. curfew was imposed on him. A job offer as a research analyst at a Manhattan investment firm was retracted due to the inspections to which his employer's computers would be subjected. His attorneys immediately filed a motion challenging the terms of his parole arguing that the internet restrictions rendered him unemployable as an analyst. On November 20, 2020, Pollard's parole expired. The U.S. Justice Department declined to extend the restrictions. Although Pollard expressed the desire to move to Israel, he did not immediately do so after his parole expired due to his wife's health issues and remained in the U.S. for over a month while she went she underwent chemotherapy for breast cancer. Pollard and his wife finally arrived in Israel on December 30, 2020, on a private jet owned by U.S. billionaire Sheldon Adelson to accommodate Esther's health issues. They were greeted on arrival by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who handed Pollard his Israeli documentation. Israeli Intelligence Minister Eli Cohen said that Pollard would be granted a government stipend equivalent to the pensions granted to former Mossad and Shin Bet agents. In accordance with COVID-19 restrictions, they went into quarantine for two weeks following their arrival. Pollard and his wife settled in Jerusalem. Esther Pollard died on January 31st, 2022. She had been hospitalized for two weeks after contracting COVID-19. Let us know your thoughts in the comment section below. Should Jonathan Pollard have been uh, paroled and sent back to Israel or should he remained in prison like the rest of all the spies we've been discussing and hey as always if you want to support the show you can buy us a copy at buymeacoffee.com slash tcns your support helps the channel grow upgrade our equipment bring in new hosts and be able to pay them as well as launch even better shows be sure to hit that like button notification button for be notified of future videos thank you so much for watching and listening we will see you next time you have been listening to the true crime never sleeps podcast thank you for listening you can follow us on facebook at true crime never sleeps podcast and on twitter at true crime ns and follow us on instagram at true crime never sleeps thanks for watching if you want to support the show 
buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNN or become a patron at patreon.com slash true crime never sleeps. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound. All with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.